You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Professor Marion Lyons from Maynooth University. Her paper was entitled, James II and Mary of Medina's Provision for Irish Jacobites in France, circa 1692 to 1718. Today I want to talk about uh, James II and Mary of Medina's provision for Irish Jacobites in France from roughly 1692 to 1718. Among the Jacobite migrants who followed James II into exile in France in the early 1690s, the large tale of Irish military and their dependents was widely acknowledged by contemporaries, particularly James and his wife, Mary of Medina, as the cohort that bore the brunt of the demise of the Stuart court at Saint-Germain-en-Laye, the disbandment of their regiments in 1698, and Louis XIV's scaling down of the French army in 1700. So in this paper, I want to begin briefly by discussing the main ways in which James and Mary sought to provide for this Irish cohort, And we'll then examine the impact of the deaths of James and Mary in 1701 and 1718, respectively, on their Irish followers specifically. And lastly, we'll explore whether there was any substance to contemporary allegations that the Irish were exceptionally problematic and the least favoured of the three Jacobite nations by James. But first, a little context. After James's wife Mary gave birth to a son and the ensuing Dutch invasion to secure the throne for James's son-in-law, William Prince of Orange, James and his followers went into exile in France. Louis XIV gave James an annual pension of 600,000 French livres on which to live and placed at his disposal his chateau of Saint-Germain-en-Laye near Versailles. We know that during the years 1688 to 1692, between 30,000 and 40,000 left the British Isles and Ireland, following James to France. Of these, according to Natalie Genrufiak, approximately 19,000 were Irish Jacobites, who, together with their dependents, left Ireland after the defeat of their forces at Limerick. Now, in the first wave of Jacobite emigration to France between 1692 and 1715, the Irish formed a clear majority, comprising about 60% of the Jacobite uh, emigrate population, as compared with roughly 34% English and only 6% Scots. It's also important to bear in mind that 40% of the Jacobite emigres down to 1715 were aristocrats, the majority of English and Scottish being courtiers and original serving members of the king's household. Unsurprisingly, the political influence of the Scots at Saint-Germain was in inverse proportion to their number. As Jenny Ruviak puts it, the closer to the centre the more Scots and English are to be found. The more distant, the more Irish. 
The outermost circle was in fact composed mainly of Irish Jacobites, and some, since political influence was determined by social standing, the Irish, despite their numbers and status in their native island, exerted little influence. And I'll return to that a little later when discussing James's treatment of his Irish military followers. So in this first wave of Jacobite migration, many from the south of Ireland and from areas with established commercial ties with France travelled directly to Brittany and further south along the western seaboard where they drew upon existing familial and commercial networks to establish themselves in businesses, many as merchants. Another wave moved to western France after Louis XIV disbanded most of the Irish regiments in 1698. In Paris and Saint-Germain, bankers and merchants were also among the Irish émigré population. And of course, in Paris, Bordeaux and other Irish um, colleges, there were Irish students studying for the priesthood along with a handful of Irish émigré prelates. The cohort that I want to focus on is the military, for whom the Jacobite court of Saint-Germain was particularly important. There, large numbers of those not on active military service who were seeking commissions, together with their dependents and those with no existing familial networks in France, converged around the court. Not all of those who travelled directly from Ireland to Saint-Germain stayed there in the long term. Once it became evident that their exile would be prolonged, perhaps permanent, and especially after the disbandment of most of the Irish regiments in 1698, many left and settled in western France or in the Bordeaux region. Some left to serve other Catholic monarchs, particularly Spain, where they were warmly welcomed, while others still went into the service in the Habsburg Empire and Russia. Nonetheless, a significant number did hang on, many of them sliding into increasing poverty and becoming exclusively dependent on the Stuarts and their household. The pressure of this sudden influx of migrants placed on the town of Saint-Germain is evidenced from the fact that the population of the town went from approximately 11,900 people in 1680 to approximately 18,200 people in 1704. Apart from providing employment on the periphery of his court and arranging their commissioning for military service, one of the most important ways in which James supported Irish officers and soldiers was providing them with certification to enable them to secure pensions and other payments from the French authorities and to help Irish nobles to gain recognition of their status in France. He issued thousands of certificates detailing their loyal service to him whilst in Ireland and their losses of income and land as a result of following him to France. Furthermore, members of the senior royal household staff, notably the royal wet nurse, the royal midwife, the royal treasurer and their personal chaplains, together with senior officers in the Jacobite regiments, lent vital support to the dependence of wounded or dead Irish soldiers by endorsing their applications for pensions from French military and ecclesiastical authorities. 
In a very limited number of instances, these senior-ranking members of the royal household became godparents to children of Irish military based at Saint-Germain. Now, both James and Mary demonstrated a strong commitment to providing educational opportunities for at least some of the children of their Irish followers. In this regard, the close connection that they fostered with the curé of the wealthy Parisian parish of Saint-Sulpice, Joachim de, de la Chattardie, was particularly important since he proved exceptionally supportive of initiatives to educate and train Irish children. In April 1697, James visited the curé to discuss the possibility of opening a school for Irish immigrants. By the end of that year, De La Chetardie had established a school for 60 Irish boys under the direction of Jean-Baptiste de la Salle and run by the Frères des Écoles Chrétiennes. In a show of support for this initiative, James, accompanied by the Archbishop of Paris, paid a personal visit to the school. Chetardie also placed Irish boys in the community of Saint-Dumas in this city, providing the necessary finance for their education. He made provision for the daughters of Irish Jacobites, placing 12 young Irish girls, the daughters of Irish captains and of a medical doctor, in the charge of the Fille de Satoma and the Rue de Grenet, and put arrangements in place for their clothing and a pension of 50 écus each. He also financed the employment of an embroidery teacher to train the girls in that skill and paid for the purchase of silk, wool and other necessary supplies. Closer to home, in 1700, James arranged for a school for Irish girls run by the Serre de Saint-Thomas de Villeneuve to be opened in Saint-Germain. The mother superior, Jacquette, uh, acquired a formidable reputation and drew the support of several benefactors who provided dowries for the girls. In addition to these schools established by James, Mary made her own contribution to the education of Irish children. She appointed a schoolmaster named John Walsh to educate the sons of her servants at Saint-Germain. And she contributed 300 livres a month for the upkeep of a so-called royal community of English, Scottish and Irish girls of Saint-Germain-en-Laye, which educated between 35 and 40 poor Irish girls, many of them orphans who boarded at the school. In her will, Mary left the sum of 6,000 livres to this school. Indeed, down to the time of her death in 1718, Mary played a vital role in supporting a large number of Irish girls and women of all ages and status in Saint-Germain, in Paris, throughout France and indeed beyond. We get some glimpse of their, the extent of her benefaction from the fact that the Stuart Archive, which is now destroyed, originally contained five large ledgers recording her monthly donations to the widows and children of Irish soldiers in her husband's service, as well as the names of those in receipt of pensions from her. Mary also acted as advocate on behalf of Irish children, men and women, who rendered good service to her husband. Among these were individuals such as a widow, Mrs Mary Wilmore, who had served James II 
and whom Mary recommended to their young son, also James, urging him to reward Mrs. Wilmore's service as soon as he would be restored to the throne of England. But she also negotiated scores of individual arrangements with bishops, prioresses and abbesses for the daughters of Irish officers to be admitted to religious orders without dowries and interceded with bishops in particular to pay for Irish girls to be maintained at convents within and beyond France. She took some trouble to cultivate the ongoing support of these senior personnel and kept a close eye to the progress of the young girls and boys whom she entrusted to the care of religious orders, often engaging in voluminous correspondence about individual youths whose welfare she oversaw. So, for instance, in August 1699, she wrote to the prior of Notre-Dame de Bonne Nouvelle, I'm sorry to learn young Weir's, of young Weir's bad conduct and the trouble he has given you, but I'm much edified that your charity is not disheartened, and thank you for wishing me to send another in his place. The bearer, young Dempsey, is the son of Colonel Dempsey, who distinguished himself highly by his zeal and loyalty, and who was killed in the service of the king, my lord. Mary made sure not to miss opportunities in securing placements for Irish youths in religious houses with which she had built up these relationships. So when in 1699 she wrote to the superior of Notre-Dame du Poitiers about an Irish girl, Miss Wire, who was moving on to become a nun elsewhere, in the same letter she asked if the superior would receive in Miss Fire's place, another Irish girl, and this was commonplace. Mary was particularly concerned with ensuring that orphaned Catholic heiresses would not end up under the influence of Protestant patrons or educators in France. And thus, in an effort to ensure that Louise Marie McGuinness, the only daughter of Lord Ivy, would not be raised by Protestant relatives, Mary paid the substantial sum of 900 livres a year to the English Benedictine nuns at Pontoise for the girls' upkeep. Furthermore, she constantly wrote to bishops and abbots throughout France, recommending Irish priests and male religious for appointment to benefices. And she was advised on an ongoing basis by Irish priests concerning the character of individuals for whom she sought positions and educational opportunities. Mary also tapped into her wider international circle of contacts to advocate for the education and placement of sons and daughters of Irish officers. In 1702, she asked the president of the Irish College at Leuven to give William Hurley, quote, the son of a gentleman who has served with much zeal in the Irish troops, a place in that college. Furthermore, she liaised with cardinals in efforts to strengthen individual Irish clerics lobbying support for Irish emigres beyond France. So in December 1702, she urged Cardinal Portocario, Primate of Spain, to support Father Bernard Kennedy, provincial of the Irish Augustinians, who intended going to Spain to advocate there for the Irish. She drew up her wide-ranging, um, drew upon rather her wide-ranging network of social connections to provide for wounded Irish officers. 
So in January 1702, she thanked the Countess of Ferrerier for receiving into her house and taking care of a Mr. Barnwall, Lieutenant Colonel of Galmoy's regiment, after he'd had an accident on the point of passing into Italy. Mary also involved her closest friends in efforts to assist the Irish specifically. And among these was the Italian Donna Vittoria Montecitorio, the Countess of Almont, who took Irish families under her protection. After James's death in 1701, the burden of providing for the Irish soldiers and their dependents at Saint-Germain grew significantly heavier for Mary. By the summer of 1713, she was faced with a looming crisis on her doorstep. In August of that month, she received a letter from the local cleric, the Abbe Ronchi, recounting how the Irish at Saint-Germain were dying of hunger, having not received any payment from the court in the previous two months. Mary described these Irish as poverty itself and bemoaned the fact that whereas 20,000 men had left Ireland for France, now only 6,000 useful soldiers uh, were left. To lend further pressure to her situation, by then rumours were circulating that Mary was in such financial straits that she was seriously contemplating drawing down her dowry. To prevent even more Irish émigrés flocking to Saint-Germain in anticipation of benefiting from her dowry, Mary ordered her treasurer to make it clear to the Irish that there would be no money for any new arrivals. After the Jacobite court moved from Saint-Germain to Avignon in March 1716, Mary continued to provide financial assistance to the dependents of officers and soldiers. But her death in 1718 and the resultant drying up of pensions dealt a major blow to many of these women and children and resulted in significant hardship and deprivation. And so to our last question whether there was any substance to contemporary allegations that the Irish were exceptionally burdensome, problematic and the least favoured of the three Jacobite nations by James. If we are to accept the depiction of the Irish element within the Jacobite population at Saint-Germain and in the city of Paris at this time, we would have a clear impression that they had a bad reputation amongst contemporaries. According to one commentator named Doran, the Irish virtually held Saint-Germain to ransom. Certainly the judicial records of Saint-Germain have ample evidence of Irish involvement in serious criminal and political disorder. Yet, as Jenny Rufiak has shown, we need to be wary of accepting this representation, which both she and David Bracken remind us is largely attributable to Williamite supporters such as Doran, and which therefore owed more to polemics than to the reality of the situation. Jenny Rufiak has also shown that at Saint-Germain and in Paris, there was little interaction between Irish, Scots and English. Indeed, she goes as far as to say that more often than not, they absolutely despised each other. So in that context, we need to be alert to criticisms of James II's treatment of the Irish, not alone from Williamite supporters, but also from those within the Jacobite camp in France. A disappointed, anonymous Irish Jacobite officer 
writing to his son in 1733, has left us perhaps, unfortunately, the only near contemporary account of the position of the Irish at Saint-Germain and of James's treatment of them during the 1690s. And it is far from complimentary. The officer alleges that James II reneged on promises to pay the Irish at an agreed higher rate. He claims that the most important posts at court were all filled by English and the Scots, who were paid big salaries, whereas the Irishman, Richard Nagel, Secretary at War, had only a modest salary. He says that the King's Council comprised only Englishmen and Scots, to the exclusion of the Irish, and he also alleges that whenever the Irish endeavoured to present themselves at the end of a military campaign, quote, they found almost all avenues closed. His Majesty scarcely deigned, or rather scarcely dared, to address a word to them in the presence of the English or the Scots. And if it did happen, he only spoke to them of indifferent trifles. Policy demanded that the English and the Scots should be preferred to them in everything and everywhere. Lastly, the officer claimed that whereas the Abbé du Clergé gave 50,000 livres to James II to be distributed amongst his poor exiles, this whole sum was given to the Scots College in Paris, Paris and the Irish got nothing. However, closer inspection of these allegations exposes serious holes in the officer's arguments. As Edward Carr has shown, there is no substance behind the first allegation about James not paying the agreed rate to Irish soldiers. There is some truth in the second allegation, in that the most important point, posts at court were indeed filled by English and Scots. On the third point, while it is true that there were no Irish members of the council at Saint-Germain, it is equally true, and perhaps surprising, that there were no Scots either. And Cor also plausibly dismisses as incredible the Irish officer's claim that James refused to receive or engage with Irish troops presenting themselves after campaigns. The available evidence shows that far from treating the Irish in a discriminatory fashion, James and his wife actually made particular, even personal, efforts to advocate for their behalf. In 1698, after Louis XIV reduced the size of the French army and made it clear that he no longer was prepared to pay for the Irish regiments in the Jacobite army, and after he further scaled down the French army in 1699-1700, James wrote to Louis in his own handwriting, asking that the Irish might be accepted from this second reform on the grounds that, quote, they're an unfortunate people who could not return to their country. However, James's appeals fell on deaf ears. Faced with growing numbers of Irish soldiers and their families reduced to unemployment and poverty, from as early as January 1698, James and Mary set about selling their jewels to alleviate the distress experienced by their Irish followers. By the end of that year, they had raised over 31,000 livres for their relief. But that was not enough to help, and so James requested of Pope Innocent XII uh, the sum of 37,500 livres in August 1699. Of this, 
by far the lion's share went to the Irish. In September 1700, they resumed the sale of the Stuart's jewels, and by the end of that year, a further 50,000 livres had been raised again for the Irish. But in an indication of the Stuart's diminishing reserves, when the sale of jewels began again in December 1701, following the death of James II, the objects sold to alleviate the distress of the Irish were now much more personal in nature. Diamond buttons, a diamond girdle, diamond shoe buckles and diamond attaches. Nonetheless, by November 1702, a further 75,600 livres had been raised. It was only with the outbreak of the Spanish War of Succession in 1701 which finally brought a breakthrough, providing much-needed employment for these Irish soldiers in both Spanish and a newly expanded French army. And it was this that ultimately saved the Stuarts from financial disaster. And then, as Edward Corr reminds us, James II's efforts to scrape money together for his Irish followers were quickly forgotten. Not least by those among the Irish Jacobite community, who in the 1720s and 30s had grown disappointed by the realisation that even if they were Catholic, James II and his son were first and foremost English, and they were making little progress in achieving a Stuart restoration. In many ways, therefore, the history of the exiled Stuart's treatment of their Irish military followers and their dependents at Saint-Germain and Paris during that first generation is a revealing exercise in the complexities of historical memory and historical forgetting. Thank you for your time.